welcome back to another episode of Inside the Ordinary. I'm here with a fellow schoolmate of mine, Malani Vijaykumar. Malani and I went to Queens together. Um, we shared a dorm together. And um, yeah, it's been a really long time since we've seen one another. When was the last time we saw each other? I'm trying to think back, actually. I was trying to think back as I was making my way over here. It has to be, we graduated from Queens in 2013, right? I didn't graduate from Queens. You didn't I transferred. Queens. You transferred. <laughs> so my memory is fantastic, and I'm not getting old at all. Um, oh, man. So, so it must be at least seven or eight years. At least, yeah. But you haven't, oh you haven't changed. I was going to say, you haven't changed either, except you're like really ripped now. I, just, I have to compliment you on that. Thank you. I just recently got into like working out. And I saw that. Yeah. It's so, oh my gosh, it makes me so happy. And then I saw how happy it makes you. And I was like, oh, dang, girl's ripped. I know. And like the weight that you're putting on the bar <laughs> as like a beginner or like someone that's just getting into it. And that's like what you're squatting, because yeah. you would just yeah you would just post maybe like, maybe like a month or so ago, maybe a couple months ago, yeah. And you like took a picture of the bar, and I was like, damn, that's what she's starting at. Yeah, well, I I started training um, about a year ago, and then I think my trainer first started me on like ninety five on the squat, like you know, like to squat, and now yeah, I guess it's like. 135, 145, I don't know, I, I guess I'm, I'm just really angry, like I, I squat with anger. <laughs> but that's honestly, that's what a lot of um, power lifters will tell you or strength athletes will tell you, it does take a lot of anger to push <laughs> that kind of weight, right? Especially like you're feeling on your back and you know it's heavy, but that anger really helps to like... It, okay, you don't well, even feel it. I should start powerlifting in my spare time then because I have enough anger for that. <laughs> <laughs> so since we haven't seen each other in such a, uh, such a long time, I've missed out on a lot. So you went to law school. I did. I went to U of T Law. And um, how was the prestigious U of T? It gave me a law degree. <laughs> I came out of there with a law degree. And okay. no, it was... Uh, it was Law school is something I think you should only do if you're really certain that you want to go into law. You have to approach it with the same mindset as med school. Nobody goes to med school on a whim. But I think more people tend to go to law school on a whim for whatever reason. And it's like, it's basically akin to a trade school. Like you have to go in knowing that you are going to come out qualified to practice a trade, which is a trade of law. And so I was very sure that I wanted to go, which was good because there, there were definitely times in law school where I, if I hadn't gone in with that burning desire to be a lawyer, I think I just, I never would have made it through. Um, and then in terms of U of T specifically, I, you know, it, it has a lot of issues. It, it one, the, probably the main issue is the 38,000 a year tuition, which is- Jesus. Yes, it is the highest tuition of any law school in the country, mm -hmm. and in my opinion, it is completely undeserved. Not because well, it's U of, U of T. T, of course. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> but 
but even still, I mean, like, I think for that kind of money, U of T should be, like, fucking gold-plating your degree and handing it to you, but, you know, obviously... With a steak dinner? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. (laughs) For two. Um, And so, insofar as I have, you know, complaints about U of T, I guess my main one would be, you could go to, if you wanted to go to law school, you could go to any other law school in the country, with maybe a couple exceptions, maybe the newer ones aren't as well-known yet, But pretty much any law school in this country is the same in terms of prestige. People try to tell you otherwise that's not the case, and Mm -hmm. you could save so much more money. So I came out of U of T with a law degree. I was very, very lucky in that I did not have debt. Um, My parents are both well-to-do and very generous, which is not the case for many, many, many people, especially women of color like me. I'm probably a unicorn in that regard. Um, But... uh, uh, well, at least out of the women of color go to law school, uh, which, which also are not many. But I came out of U of T with no debt, and the experience was, it still put me through the ringer. And so I can't imagine what people who come out of it with over $100,000 in debt, how they feel. Oh, man. So that is sort of my feeling about U of T in a, in a <laughs> nutshell. And yeah, I could talk more about that. But <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, I. I'm sure I expressed this to you while I was in school, but I definitely had an interest in practicing law and studying law. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if it was more what my family wanted for me right. versus where I would actually excel. Right. Um, I know for a really long time, because I was so outspoken and argumentative um, and a little bit feisty, <laughs> they my family naturally gravitated towards you know you should become a lawyer like you're really smart you're really outspoken so that was stuck in my mind for a really long time Mm -hmm. and then time to apply to university and it was I think it was like Queens Western and U of T right U of T was out of the question because if you didn't have a 90 plus average it was nearly impossible to get a scholarship or right. any sort of bursary. And I'm sure even for undergrad, U of T is not cheap. And right. Um, so Queens seemed like the next best thing. And because I had always heard great things about Queens. And, you know, my mom was very much, bless her soul, I love my mom. She helped me financially with the first two years at Queens. And it was basically like you, you, you know, you go to university, you go to a good university. Right. Um, and you'll you'll get the help that you that you need financially. Right. Looking back now, would I have gone to Queens? Would I have had the mentality of, you know, Queens is going to get me into law? Because as soon as I got to Queens, my second year in, I was a part of the pre-law society. Oh my God, I remember that. Yeah. I, I remember <laughs> that society. Yeah. Oh gosh. And... I think we did fuck all. I mean, no no offense to the good people who run the society. I'm yeah. sure I tried to at some point. Um, <laughs> but I, I remember us doing not very much. Not really. I, I think it was just more of a, let's feel like we're doing something. Yeah, and let's feel like we're learning about law. Which, hey, I mean, look, it, it is good. It is a good idea to try and learn about the profession of law before you go to law school. That's a very good idea. Definitely. But, uh, 
But yeah, yeah, no, I forgot that we were in pre-law society together. Yeah. <laughs> and it was so much back. It was definitely a pivotal experience for me because I remember they brought in some alumni and they were practicing lawyers now. And one of them, I could see it as if it happened yesterday. And she said, if law, like getting into law is not something where you wake up one morning and you're like, I'm going to be a lawyer. Yes. You really, really, really have to know that you're going to be working some long, grueling hours. Right. And it's going to consume a lot of your life. And the minute she said that, I was like, um, York University, I'm coming your way. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know that that was a pivotal moment. It was. No, but that's, you know, that's definitely true. And so I've been practicing now for, um, I got called to the bar in June 2017. So I've been practicing law for about 16 months. So, you know, just close to a year and a half. You sound so adult. Oh my God, you have no idea. Like yesterday I ate Lucky Charms at midnight because I wanted sugar. So, uh, you know, adult for some value. You had a long day. They're all long. Um, (laughs) Adult for some value of being adult, I think. But, But no, that's definitely true. And so there were times this year where I... You know, again, like I said, like I was telling you about um, how there are times in law school where I was very close, where I was very close to quitting. There were definitely times this year where I was very close to quitting, where I thought, "This is it. I can't do law. I can't like. How can clients come to me and entrust me with their files and their money and their rights, and expect me, you know, someone who who is a baby and doesn't know at all what she's doing, to make strategic decisions to protect those rights? I don't know anything." And, you know, probably in about March to May of this year, it became very overwhelming. I was constantly sick from stress and I was thinking, really, this is it. I was going to quit. And then something happened. I I think every new lawyer probably goes through that in the first 12 to 18 months. And then something happened. And very slowly, I started realizing, um, you know, the, the, the things that used to freak me out when I started even six months previously, didn't freak me out as much anymore. The things that I thought were so new and scary and and unforeseen a few months ago weren't were, were a little more familiar now. And it was I all part of the get, process. Yeah. And yeah. and it's amazing the way growth happens. You know, you don't you never realize in the moment that you're growing because growth is often so painful. It just feels like pain a lot of the time. And sometimes, you know... You, or anxiety. It, well, <laughs> so I, I have anxiety and I, I've, seen, I, I've, I've seen the same therapist for the past few years about that. And, and yeah, I can definitely talk about that as well. But I just remember, like, and I think it was even a couple months ago, like, life is still crazy. I'm still working, like, 70-hour weeks. But I have some files right now that are really interesting to me. And so, yes, there is, you know, sort of the tedium and the crappy shit and the files that suck and they, you know, they really stress you out. But then I'm also working on some really cool stuff right now, stuff Mm -hmm. that I'd be proud to put my name on, stuff that I'm, I stay up working till 2, 3 a.m., you know, not hating my life, but because this makes my life. Mm -hmm. And so it's not every day. There are definitely many, many days where I'm still like, oh my God, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. 
But very slowly I've started to see that there have been more and more days where I'm sort of remembering why it was that I wanted to be a lawyer and, and those days have been a real gift lately. Remind me again what kind of law firm you work for. Yeah, so... I remember it being something so interesting because you've told me before. <laughs> um, so I work for a law firm called Stevenson, Walton, McDonald, and Swan, and uh, it's a, a civil litigation firm. We have our main offices in Toronto and Vaughan, and then we also have offices in Oakville and Oshawa. Um, and what I do is civil litigation. So I'm a going-to-court lawyer. Uh, that doesn't mean that everything I do is going to court. A lot of it is pre-litigation, negotiation, and settlement. Um, some of it can be strategic advice, especially to my corporate clients, um, about business strategies they may take that may intersect with the law. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and But a lot of it is, of course, going to court or preparing to go to court or threatening to go to court. And so I do that for, you know, I, I part of my practice is um, personal injury and medical malpractice, which can range from anything from your basic slip and fall to a botched brain surgery where you're suing the doctors. And then the rest of my practice is what I call commercial litigation. And that can be anything from, you know, employment issues. So if you've been laid off and you don't think your employer has paid you the right amount of severance to shareholder disputes, intellectual property disputes, um, you know, real properties of real estate transactions gone south so it's a really huge variety of things which is part of what I like because if I'm working on a file and you know it's 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 a slog or you know it's there's there's tedious parts to it at least I know that every single file is not going to be the same everything Mm -hmm. is different and so the variety really is something I really enjoy so let me get this straight so you practice both uh, commercial law and and personal injury law? Yeah. They're all part of the oh. civil litigation system. So okay. if you can, generally, if you can sue someone for it, <laughs> I could probably help you with certain limited exceptions. I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I don't do any criminal law, although I was very, very interested in that for a long time. Um, I don't do any family law. I don't do any immigration law. I couldn't imagine doing any of the ones that you just mentioned. They are so... I, I could only imagine how overwhelming it would be on an emotional level. Oh, yeah. To maybe, like, tell someone, I can't help you legally immigrate here. Yeah, you're, you're going to have to go back home. I, you're being deported or removed and yeah. I can't help you. Or, like, I'm a family yeah. lawyer and I'm helping someone through a nasty divorce and there's children involved like I couldn't I I'm on the same page as you yeah you're exactly right like it so the closest thing I do to family law is estate litigation which I have a sort of unofficial rule for myself that I can't have more than one estates file at the same time because it's (laughs) it it is family law for dead people like At least you run into a far... Love how blunt you are. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> and at least you run into a far higher likelihood that the children, quote-unquote, are all going to be grown adults who are all awful to each other. So, you know, it doesn't tug at your heartstrings the same way I imagine practicing family law does, where you have these innocent, completely blameless, actual young children. I, I Yeah, I agree with you. I think that would be my line. I think... If I had to, I could do criminal. If I really had to, I could do immigration. But I don't 
I don't think I could ever do family. And I have a lot of respect for lawyers who do. For sure. But see, with criminal, <laughs> there's there's a line too. Because what if you know that your client's guilty? Then you Like, do... what do they teach you in law school? When you... Because you learn a little bit of everything. You have to. Yeah. And I got practical experience in law school too. Because we, we had uh, the U of T Legal Aid Clinic called Downtown Legal Services. And so as, as a law student... I actually represented a bunch of people in um, what's called summary conviction offenses, so minor criminal offenses. But those offenses still include assault. They can include, I, I think, assault with a weapon. It's been a while. I'm a little fuzzy. But I did have clients um, on who, who had been charged with assault and assault with a weapon. And I did have clients who I spoke to, and you know, they said they 100% did it. And so when you get into that situation, for me anyway, you know, I, I looked at other ways to attack the process and the charges. Like, for example, did the Crown not inform my client of his right to counsel? Because regardless of whether my client has shoplifted a candy bar or murdered somebody, he has a right to counsel. And if the Crown does not advise him of that right, if the Crown attempts to extract evidence from him or if the police attempt to extract a confession without respecting his due process right then there's a number of ways i can defend him against a charge without misleading the court and saying no my client never did it the process is actually more nuanced than a lot of people think it is because you know you could you could go and say you could you you could go and say my client's rights have been violated here he's been held in jail um for months on end without bail in inhumane conditions yeah and everything you're saying is the truth, and you can find recourse that way. So, <laughs> you know, there, there's a lot of ways to, to fight. But do you ever feel personally that you're, I mean, I guess in that sort of situation, going against your own morals? And um, is there like a, there, is there a conflict between, you know, logic and, and those morals? Yeah, no, it's. Like, I had a client who um, was charged with domestic assault. And, Ooh. you know, I definitely, like, domestic assault and, you know, sexual assault are two of those sort of areas where, you know, it, it, it definitely kind of turns your stomach a little to, to think of them, especially if your client, you know, if you're talking to your client and, and it becomes apparent that he actually did it. Yes. Um, I think with the domestic assault client, I sort of just, you know, pushed that down and did my duty. I thought, you know what, I would not want, I would not want to live in a society where an unproven charge could mean that I don't have a right to fair representation. I'm building the society I want to live in. But when it comes to actually, you know, representing that person, I mean, look at, you know, Marie Hennon representing John Gameshi, right? A lot of people including some lawyers, would go, I could never do that. And I think that was part of why I am now a civil litigator and that I didn't seriously pursue a career in criminal defense. There were many reasons, but I think one of those reasons might have been I I honestly don't know how I'd feel about representing someone who had been charged with sexual assault. I believe that they deserve representation. I believe that Marie Hennon did a fantastic job for John Gameshi. I believe she does a very important and necessary job. I'd never denigrate her for what she does. You just couldn't do it. 
I guess I just don't know, and I wouldn't want to test that not knowing mm-hmm. on an actual human being. So, fair enough. Yeah. Well, on a brighter note, yes. you were, uh, <laughs> well, sort of on a brighter note, you were in a magazine. I was. I was on the cover of a magazine. You were in a cut, co- and the makeup, you look beautiful. Oh, thank you. It was such a natural look. I just, with a lot of professional makeup artists, they do, you know, enhance the amount of makeup that they put on you just because, depending on, like, this scene that they're going to be photographing you in, but they did mm. such an excellent job with your makeup. Thank it you. Was, it was great. So, tell me a little bit about this magazine feature. Sure. So, uh, but just a quick comment on the, on the cover first. So, when, yeah. I, when I showed the magazine to my parents, you know, my, my parents are, are lovely people. I love them so much. Um, we always preface that before <laughs> we're, we're about to say something ethnic not so parents, nice about their parents. Ethnic, ethnic parents, right? Like, you know where it's at. And, oh, yeah. And, you know, my mom kind of looked at it and she was like, you look like you have no hair. <laughs> Where's your hair? Why couldn't they do something nice with your hair? Oh. And I was like. That sounds so spot on oh, of ethnic Mom, parents. I love you. <laughs> but yeah, so the magazine is called Precedent Magazine, and I think it was in their spring 2018 issue. And, it was. Um, they're a magazine that uh, basically is for the legal audience. I think their tagline is uh, the, the rules of law and style or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so um, they're geared towards lawyers. They run articles about the practice of law, but also about, you know, style tips and things like that. So they're this very kind of like cool, cutting edge kind of magazine. And yeah. a lot a of A little bit more yes. than just the law. Yeah, exactly. Lawyers are people too. Exactly. And I think <laughs> I think that's basically precedent's whole shtick. Um, if anyone from precedent is listening, I hope I've accurately <laughs> represented you. I make no <laughs> representations that may bind me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> lawyers are so fun. But yeah, so they have a student version of their magazine called Precedent JD. JD, of course, stands for the law degree Juris Doctor. Right. And they had run an issue, I think it was last fall, about stress and mental health and lawyers. And now, like I said, you know, I have anxiety. I've been seeing a therapist for it for some years now. I'm very open about it. Um, I'm not on medication, but I find that cognitive behavioral therapy has really helped me, and I do it. I, I see a therapist regularly even now. And... You know, I was, I was reading this article because the topic of mental health has become very prevalent in the legal profession right now. Which is great. Yeah, because, you know, definitely the the suffering of mental health issues has been prevalent in the legal profession forever. So I'm really yeah. glad that talking about it is also common now. It, it wasn't always the case. And the article in the student version of the magazine um, had these tips for lawyers suffering from extreme stress and anxiety and as I was reading them it just struck me that they were these tips were not in touch with the reality of things for example I was just gonna ask you what are these tips so it was like (laughs) sleep eight hours a night and you know exercise regularly and um one tip I especially uh found amusing was allow yourself 10 minutes a day to worry and set a timer, and when the timer goes off, you're not allowed to worry anymore. Like, your worrying is done. That's not how the human brain works. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, and again, not to slam the article, like, I do think they were onto a really important topic, and, and it is very important. And I'm never going to say that sleeping and exercising and 
managing your worries are not good things. It's mm-hmm. just we're not idiots. So when I don't sleep eight hours a night, when I sleep four to five hours a night and wake up in the middle of the night shaking with stress, it's not so easy to just say, like, I know I should be sleeping eight of hours course. a night. And I know I should be going to the gym regularly. These things are not rocket science and we're not yeah. stupid. But, but your anxiety is debilitating. can be debilitating. Exactly. You know, it really can be. And what's more is we've created a profession where we've celebrated burning yourself out. We've celebrated being in a crunch mode. Whenever I talk to my law, my, uh, my, my lawyer, I was going to say my law school friends, I guess they're my lawyer friends now. <laughs> but whenever I talk to my lawyer friends, it, it, the conversation often turns into this weird pissing contest about how stressed we all are and how we haven't slept. And I kind of sit in the middle of that conversation and go, what has gone wrong that we're almost in a perverse way celebrating this? And that our employers are making us feel that we can't just work 40, 50 hours a week, which would be a normal, busy work week. We have to go to 70 and 80 and 90. And Why? that somehow makes you a better lawyer. Right, and, and it makes no sense. And so I really saw it as an issue and a failing with the profession, and I got so tired of articles like this, or many like them, putting all the onus on the lawyer herself to fix her situation without a recognition of the realities that are perpetuated by top management and senior members of the profession who for one reason or another I don't I still don't know maybe they grew up through the profession that way and they think it has to be like that for everybody after them it's an old school mentality and structure of things really. yeah and so if you first of all if you didn't if you weren't suffering like this when you were a junior lawyer you should not be putting this on your junior lawyers now and if you were suffering like this why should you perpetuate that why is that a reason to let this continue? why do you want to make somebody else feel that way right and so sorry to go back to your very original question mm-hmm. i i wrote this big long email to president being like I have some issues with this article. You go, girl. And <laughs> well, they know lawyers very well over there because somebody responded and, and went, um, we're actually doing a mental health feature in our spring 2018 issue. How would you like to be featured in it? And I went, uh, oh. <laughs> oh, well. I thought you would just hear me out and take my input, not feature me. Yeah, well, no, no, no. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was almost like I was all ready to be mad at you and oh, well, now you want to interview me and make me famous. And so, I'm ready. I'm ready. Where's my close-up? I'm ready. Um, and so that's how this, this happened. And, uh, yeah, it was the first time that, you know, so I was, I've always been very open about seeking therapy, having anxiety, experiencing my struggles with um, anxiety attacks, panic attacks, um, and at times in my life, situational depression where, you know, I've hit some very low points and there have been days where I've thought, I don't want to be here anymore and I want to make it so that I'm not here anymore. And I've never acted on that, um, thank God. But, you know, I, I've definitely been there and I, I've, I haven't had a problem with admitting that. But to, and even when I was giving the interview for president, I was just talking with somebody over coffee. I knew sort of intellectually that it would be in a magazine but it didn't really hit me until I saw it in print. And then I kind of freaked out a bit because yeah. I was like, I was getting so many emails, but they were all great ones. And they were all emails from everybody from junior lawyers to senior partners at international law firms were emailing me saying, I feel the exact same way. And while well, I that's felt great. Yeah. And so while I felt very relieved and vindicated, 
it also made me feel really sad because something's wrong if that many people are, are feeling, feeling the, same, the way. same way. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that you say that because I have to say I can relate on a, on a certain level. Uh, I don't necessarily work 70 to 80 hours a week, but I Nobody do. Nobody should, by the way. That's not normal. I, I don't think it is. And I don't think I ever would. That's unless maybe reasonable. Unless maybe I ran my own company, mm-hmm. which I think, in fairness, initially in the beginning stages, it probably would take that much time in order for me to get things up and running. However, I do feel that way, and I have felt that way in in at the workplace where your upper management is perpetuating so much stress about things that maybe you shouldn't be stressing to that level. Right. I mean, our, our physiological stress responses are a product of evolution. They're a product of the time where if we were out hunting and we saw a big lion growling at us, our body needed to produce the adrenaline and the surge in our heart rate to and, fight and or the flight. energy to, to fight or flee. Exactly. Yeah. So little of what we do these days, especially at work, is <laughs> is is life threatening. You know, Requires if you actually that. think about it, like like I have this I have this thing I always think about. You know, even in law, where everything seems like it's such high stakes, and and it is, it is, and it's very important to the people. But I, to the people you're representing, but I always think about the fact that I'm not an open heart surgeon. Nobody is dying on a table in front of me. Nobody's going to die if I take a breath for a moment, if this has to wait till tomorrow. There are very few things that are not fixable, and even if they are not fixable, nobody is going to die. And yeah, like it's, it's, and so when that stress gets put on you and you experience that, there's no reason for you to have the evolutionarily geared response of fight or flight to like, whether a report is late, you know? Do you feel like your bosses exude that level of stress onto you? Or do you feel at this point maybe you've gotten uh, to a point with them where they have that same mentality like you were just speaking about mm-hmm. where, you know, nobody's going to die if that report's late? Yeah, so I've been very lucky with the place that I am at. I approached them um, quite early on, um, even in my article year, which is the year you do basically, a, it's equivalent to a medical residency, uh, but for law. And, you know, it's, it's for 10 months, and then they decide whether they want to hire you back as an associate or not. So even when my hire back was sort of still in question, um, I was experiencing anxiety attacks and panic attacks from time to time at work. Uh, due to stress and also some personal things that happened that year that sort of exacerbated the work stress. And my bosses are very understanding and they would always say, you know, if you need to give this project to somebody else, go ahead. Can I help you with this? Like, you know, even senior people, you know, coming and saying to the student, can I take this off your plate if you're feeling overwhelmed? And so I really appreciated that and I appreciated that they wouldn't stick to strict hierarchy at the expense of my health. Um, it's continued, you know, as I've, as I've been a lawyer, they've been very, very understanding and supportive. I went to them before I did the precedent article and their only comment was basically, you know, 
if there's something going on that we can help with, please let us know. That so, is so rare to find yeah. in an employer, I would say. Oh, yeah, and there have been times where I've said no. Like, I started working, you know, with this goal for myself that I would never say no to a single work assignment because I want to overachieve and I want to be the best lawyer that ever was. Um, and in the past few months, I've had to say I've had to say no to all, all manner of things, and it's never negatively um, impacted my status uh, at the firm. But that being said, even if you have the most supportive bosses in the world, I can tell they're under a massive amount of stress most of the time. And then, you know, that puts me under a massive amount of stress just because I don't feel it's fair if I push off half the things I have to do because they have to get done by somebody. Those files, those clients have to be represented by somebody. These people are also extremely stressed. It's not like they're kicking back in the Bahamas while I'm sweating in the office on a Sunday. <laughs> and so I feel like it's more of a structural problem in this profession and many others where, like, like why? Why do we have to push ourselves to that extent? And I still don't really have an answer. I saw somewhere... I think it was an article that I was reading in the like illustrious Denmark where they're trying all of these like new and experimental approaches. It's always there. Or, I guess that's not Scandinavia, sorry. But like, you know, <laughs> Europe. It's yeah, always Europe. Europe. I know. Always exper <laughs> uh, experimenting with things. But there were these employers that were limiting the number of hours that you work a day from eight to six hours. Yes. I think I heard something about that. And, and, employers were actually not allowed to email their employees after a certain yes. time. Yes. Maybe that was France. And they were finding that their employees were a lot more productive yes. within that six hours than the eight hours. They were able to work their productive six hours and then go home and have that work-life balance, mm -hmm. remove themselves from work, and go and enjoy their families. Yes. I feel like we have a lot, our society has a lot to learn from that. I don't know when that's going to come here. But I hope soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I feel like a lot of people, especially of the older generation, kind of look at that and they go, oh, these whiny, soft, entitled kids, they just don't want to put in any work. These millennials. These millennials with their <laughs> avocado toast and their Starbucks. Um, <laughs> avocado toast is really good, though. Oh, my God. Avocado toast is lit. Like, I, I would... I, I love avocado toast. Um, Sorry yeah. I didn't have any today. <laughs> now I want some. Um, but... You know, it, it's not that. It's that we're looking at the world, I think, and we're, we're asking ourselves, how can we make life better? Why do we have to accept the status quo that's always been? If I could work for 40, sorry, 40 hours is like my conception of an easy week now. That's, that's ridiculous. But if I, if, okay, if I could work 30 hours a week and make enough money to feed and clothe myself, and my family and enough money to keep my com company or enterprise going why not do that you know why wring every single drop out of myself because that's not time I'm gonna get back and that's not money that I'm gonna have the time to enjoy either I can make so much money but you know when would I actually enjoy it except one day when you know my, my heart is gone and my knees are gone and my hips are gone and then what am I going to do, you know? Not have the time to enjoy that 
money that you worked so, so hard for and worked 70 mm-hmm. hours a week for. And that's a thing that we have problems with is that that concept where it's if we don't accept that idea where we have to work countless hours to make that money because money is that's that's how we live right right and especially working and living in Toronto Mm -hmm. it's next to impossible for you to work on based on minimum wage and live in Toronto yeah so we and for a long time like you said we've had this conceptualization of what what it is to work and how far we have to stretch ourselves in order to fulfill this level of success but again society and our structures have made it that much harder by I don't know making rent I read an article the other day the average rent in Toronto is $2,400 for a one-bedroom oh my god I feel really lucky now. I, I, no I wonder pay. you moved back to Mississauga. <laughs> yeah, but I, 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 I was paying 1500 a month all in for my one bedroom in the West End, and I thought that was expensive. <laughs> but, it, but it still can be, for but sure. it still is, yeah. And I think, you know, but I think we are seeing a shift and a resistance to this, because what's happened is the traditional ideal of success was the home with the white picket fence and the soccer van and the, you know... And in the backyard and all of that. And that was a definition of success of a, ge- of a generation before us. And what happened was that generation made it impossible for this generation to achieve that success. But it's still selling us the myth that we have to work all the hours in the day in order to have that version of success. And I think that our generation is very smart. And I think that we're looking at that and saying, well, you know what? I don't want or need to get married by 25 have three kids by 30 and have a house for one I can't do it anyway um but but also you know maybe I don't want to get married at all maybe I want to have kids but not be married maybe I my only kids will be dogs maybe I will rent forever because I don't really need to own a house these concepts of wealth and equity and and traditional success don't apply to me I mean I have a friend right now so so I'm probably the closest to the sort of traditional baby boomer idea of success and I'm living with my parents at 27 so take (laughs) from that what you will it's actually been quite nice Um, you're being strategic about it you're saving money nothing wrong with that yeah but I have a friend from Queens um who you probably know actually his name's Jamie Oh, Jamie, yes. Oh, my God, yes. Wow. He's living in... I think he's in Japan right now. Yes. And so he's been doing this thing, I think, pretty much since 2013 or 14. Um, uh, Or maybe a little bit later than that. No, maybe about 2015, 2016. But anyway, you know, he was doing this thing, and and at the time he told me about it, and I thought it was crazy. He said, I'm going to just empty my bank account and go to New Zealand, and... Yeah. And I was like, for what? Like, what job do you have in New Zealand? What? And he was like, well, there's a temp agency. I can sign up, but there's a hospital I can stay at. It's pretty cheap. Oh, and he was I like, admire oh. him. And I was, yeah, I, I do too. But I was, I was terrified for him. And I think I was, you know, I was like ch- trying to be his mother. And I was like, why you can't do that? That's so irresponsible. <laughs> but he went 
And I thought it would last maybe six months and he'd come back. And he's been gone a few years just traveling here and there. He lived in New Zealand, and then he went to Australia, and then he went to Korea, and then now he's in Japan. And how does he make money? So he teaches English, Hmm. and um, he has uh, his necessary qualifications to do that, and he... You know, but he's done a whole lot of other jobs. I think in Australia, he worked for a bank for a bit, doing like admin work. Yeah, because he got his degree in mathematics or in something related. Something. Sorry, Jamie, I'm a bad friend. I don't remember. Finance, what you got mathematics. Your, I don't think it was finance, but I think you got. Yeah, you, oh, psych. I think it was psych. Um, but didn't he minor in math? Something like that. Yeah, I or he took some. He was taking some kind of math course. Yeah. It's not. It's not important. You're still. <laughs> you're still very special and very smart. Um. <laughs> And that's his definition of success right now. And I remember it took me a while to wrap my head around that because he wasn't following this path that we've all been told to follow, which is, you know, get married or have a have a long term partner, um, settle down, quote unquote, save for a house, stay in one spot. If you're going to travel, do it only for short term vacations. No, he's he's jet setting around and he's living a great life. And he could keep doing that pretty much as long as he wants and as long as he can have a visa to do it. And I look at him and I'm so in awe of that kind of freedom. Um, And I think that we're slowly starting to realize we could have that too or we could have whatever idea of quote-unquote success we want to have. Like there are people now who live with their friends, you know, they don't feel the need to start a, a family with a monogamous partner um, and settle down in the traditional sense. People live with their friends their whole lives. Like, I have friends in their early to late 30s um, who, who just live with roommates. And so to people of my parents' generation, they might think, oh, they're just layabouts or why are they yeah. living with roommates? And Even I have a tendency of, of going to that mentality as well. Where it's like, oh, you're 30 years old. Like, shouldn't you, I don't know, own a house now or at least yes. live on your own now? Yeah. Because that is what I was taught. Yeah. Right? At a certain point. I mean, I moved out of my family's house at a pretty young age, at around 17, 18, mm-hmm. to go to Queens. And uh, and yeah, from from then on, like I couldn't I couldn't really imagine going back, but yeah, I guess I guess it's whatever's instilled in you. Yeah. It's hard to evolve, but like you said, we're doing it, uh, and uh, and we're part of that generation that's doing it, which is really exciting. Yeah, I really think it is, and I'm so excited to see what our generation does with these traditional notions of where we're supposed to be and how we flip the script. Thank you so much. I know you have to run with your busy <laughs> lawyer schedule. Thank you again. Thank you for having me. This has been really, really fun. No problem. And I, I definitely want to have you back for some updates and uh, I would love how that. law life is treating you. I would love that. And yeah. talk about your dance life and your cooking too. <laughs> so many sides to Melanie. Yes, there's always more to discover. But no, this has been fantastic. And I love what you're doing here with this project. This, this is really awesome. Thank you so much. Well, that was another episode of Inside the Ordinary, and I'll catch you for the next one.